Welcome to Viewpoints Listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome to the program for the first time, Robert Desai. Robert's an Australian writer and translator whose best-known books are the autobiography, A Mother's Disgrace, the novel Night Letters, the travel memoirs Twilight of Love and Arabesques, and his uh, meditation on love, friendship, religion and mortality, What Days Are For. And uh, his current new publication is Growing Older Well, The Times of Our Lives, and that's published by Brio Books. Uh, Welcome to Viewpoints, uh, Robert. How are you? Thank you, Henry. I'm fine here in Tasmania, where (laughs) everything is more or less normal. Yes, just before we get into it, uh, uh, depending on what state you're in under COVID-19 uh, uh, circumstances, uh, things are quite different here in Victoria, Melbourne in particular, um, as you probably would know and read, uh, things are a bit more um, a bit more grim than they Fraught. would be in Tasmania. Yes, no, here it's just like Albania really, quite hilly, very small, and we can't get out, do you know what I mean? Um <laughs> Well, neither I can we. <laughs> neither can you, no, that's right. I don't think you want us to get out at the moment, frankly. <laughs> no, we want you to stay right where you are, yes. Uh, now, Robert, um, the time of our lives, before we get into that, as I said to you off air, um, you've led a very uh, interesting life. You've written widely on many important matters uh, of, 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 of life in general for people from many different perspectives. Um, the time of our lives, I, I, I couldn't help but note that um, uh, you were once upon a time Robert Jones. You're now Robert Desai. Um have you, are you, have you led two lives? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope more than that, actually. Uh, yes, I was, I was adopted uh, when I was uh, a baby, and I was adopted by the Joneses, uh, a wonderful couple. I now realise, I didn't realise at the time, children don't, do they? But they were very old, almost illegally old, I think. My father was <laughs> 55. My father was born in the 1880s. And I don't think you were supposed to adopt children when you were quite that old, but it was during the war, and so it was possible people sort of disobeyed the rules. But when they had died, and I tend to say died and not passed on, as everybody Mm -hmm. seems to want to say these days, I thought I will go back to my mother's name, my biological mother's name, which I'd known all my life, which was to say D-E-S-S-A-I-X. And so I've... uh, been that for most of my life now but first of all I was Robert Jones yes and lived in Sydney Lower North Shore Sydney. Now the the time of changing your name um, what 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 psychological emotional change if any has that made to you I ask you that question on the basis that as we get into the time of our lives it's a deeply reflective in many ways and witty and humorous uh, book uh, also very serious, so uh, that's why I ask. Well, I changed my name because I didn't really feel that I was a Jones. And my wife at that time, I was married mm-hmm. to a woman, as one has to add these days, just in case you're misunderstood. <laughs> my wife was very happy to change our name to something that sounded a little more exotic and interesting than Jones. I mean, Jones sort of uh, sounds... Of well, you know, there's a thud after you've said Jones. Uh, there's no resonance whatsoever. So I changed it, and I'm happy that I have because 
people remember it, you see. They can't spell it, of course, but they do remember it. <laughs> and uh, in this world, it pays to have something about you that people remember. Now it's my white hair. I've got brilliantly white hair. You can see me coming from about a kilometre away. But in those days, it was my name. Now, now Russian. Uh, interesting. You're interested in the Russian language and Russian culture. Uh, where did, from where did that emanate? That came from postage stamps. I was, as a little boy, interested in, in collecting postage stamps. All little boys were interested in collecting postage stamps. Yes. And I had some beautiful Soviet stamps. Most authoritarian regimes and dictatorships have fabulous stamps. I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> haven't got much else, but they've got that. And so I thought I'd like to be able to interpret the words on the stamps. I bought myself a dictionary. I was eight or nine at the time and started to decipher the words on the stamps. Then I went and had lessons in Russian. And then I did Russian for the leaving certificate, the last certificate at high school. And then I went to university and studied Russian, went to Moscow and did two, uh, or did the work for two postgraduate degrees. So Russian became my life. It's less my life now. I mean, I'm very disappointed in what Russia has become since the Berlin Wall fell down. I thought it would become civilized country. It seems to have turned into a ghastly kind of Texas with Russian Orthodox overtones. I really don't feel attracted to Russia anymore. I do to the 19th century. Wrote a mm. book about Turgenev, yes, the 19th century writer, but not to modern Russia. I've fallen out of love, Henry. Yes. Oh, well. Well, that um, if you if you look at that from different perspectives, and your book does that, the time of our lives, you can look at things from many many angles. Falling out of love could be if you took some of the messages from the time of our lives, be also seen as a a great opportunity for new adventures of love, <laughs> for falling in love again. Yes. Well, yes. I, I don't fall in love very often, but I do have dalliances. I'm a great believer in dalliances. The wonderful thing about dalliances, and we talk about it in the book, I talk about it with the various women, mostly women, that I have conversations with uh, in the book. The wonderful thing about dalliances is that they may be sexual, but they don't have to be. They can be highly emotional. They can be, well, they're usually erotic or have an erotic tinge. They can be very close, but how close they are, we don't know until we look at the rules. You might have a dalliance every Friday afternoon at three o'clock, for example, or you might have one that happens every day or is enacted every day. I'm very keen on dalliances. I suppose I think that love affairs as such are a bit too exhausting for most people my age, although a couple of the women in the book are enthusiastically involved in love affairs, including one Melbourne woman, well into her 70s. I have another friend in Canada, well into her 70s, who's just found love, the greatest love of her, of her life. She's just found it. It totally consumes her. It has transformed her. So, yes, when one love fails, in my case, Russia failed, there's room for new loves. I suppose my replacement for Russia is Indonesia. Mm, interesting. Now, in your book, um, I'm always interested in where things commence, just to give me a grounding. Uh, you start, part one, the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, why that choice? Well, 
I have a biblical education, like many people my age, I suppose death is the last enemy. And it's the last enemy that Christianity is supposed to help us overcome. And while I don't espouse specifically Christian philosophy in this book, in fact, I don't espouse a religious philosophy at all, I do acknowledge that for many of us, death is the great enemy that we must battle over and over again every day, really. Every time I walk past a gym in Sandy Bay here in Hobart, I see people trying to overcome death by running on running machines and lifting weights. It won't work. We know it doesn't work. Uh, and it's simply insufferably boring. I have tried it myself. I tried <laughs> for three years. The boredom is infinite. The boredom of a gym is crushing. But people keep doing it. People do yoga, of course. They do Tai Chi. They drink odd concoctions that are a funny shade of green. They drink uh, wheat grass, I think it is. They do all sorts of things to stay young, to battle the great enemy. None of it works. Yes, yes, and, and, and you do say that. You say, uh, as you talk about the last enemy, is there no comfort to be had anywhere in the face of death? Uh, of course, as we go through the book, we find there is. Um, it's a question that, that is, is, is raised. Um, that, that can wear people down, I think. Uh, is that a, a one of the motivations behind your book? Yes, it's to try to get people to accept the fact that what is happening to them now is going to stop. It will end. And what happens next is, from my point of view, nothing. If they wish to believe that something else happens, that there is some kind of afterlife, that's their business. But this is going to end. And so we have to look at what we can do in a search for consolation. I think there are consolations. And one of the great consolations, the Greeks talked about it 2,500 years ago, is to think more about friendship than about death, which can't be avoided. In fact, some philosophers would say that without death, nothing makes any sense at all. Everything becomes a kind of infinite, flat space. The death gives things a point, it gives things a thrust, it gives things something to aim for, really. But we should think more, the Greeks said, and I believe it's true, about friendship, all the kinds of friendship that are possible for us. And when we're older, we often have time for these friendships. You can have friendships with children, of course. I'm not very good at that. I'm not really interested in anyone much under about 34, to be quite honest. But some people do find children good to have friendships with. But people our own age, friendships that have an erotic edge, friendships that are about shared loves like fishing or playing mahjong, who knows what it might be. Friendships based on shared values, all sorts of friendships. I think one of the consolations of growing older is that you can do this at your leisure. And it's a great joy, a joy that's very hard to find the right words for because we're a bit embarrassed about friendship and have very few words for it. In English, just one word, friend. The newspapers try to make us use the word mate, of course. Mm. I refuse to pronounce that word. Uh, it seems to me that's a, a warfare word. You have mates in war. Well, I'm not at war, so I don't need mates. I have friends. Good point. Will you take a short break, uh, Robert? Can you hold the line? Please do. 
Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossing. I'm in a discussion with Robert Desai, who's the author of Growing Older Well, The Time of Our Lives. It's just been published by Bryo Books. Welcome back, Robert. Thank you, Henry. Did you go anywhere during the break, uh, uh, transcendentally or however? No, I just sat here and watched a finch, which has little baby finches in its nest, fly in and out of its nest in my backyard. That's what I did. Ah, the regeneration of life. Um, segues well into my, my next part, and you, you confront this. Um, if, we, if we're talking about uh, life and death, it's hard not to escape that, uh, that topic of near-death experiences or the shadow self, as you call it. You might like to elaborate on how that uh, found its way into your book. Well, I've died twice, you see, as I explained in this book. I wrote about it in What Days Are For, because that was about the experience of recovering from a heart attack in which clinically, I've got the documents in my filing cabinet, I died twice. And I'm here to say that not only did nothing happen, but not only was, was there nothing there, there was no there there. It was like a phone going dead. What's on your SIM card doesn't go anywhere. It just waits for you to recharge the SIM card. Well, recharging my body is not going to happen. On that occasion, it did happen, but in general, it doesn't happen. I don't believe anything happens. And so I think what we do more usefully, rather than think about afterlives or about near-death experiences, is concentrate on having an inner life here now the problem with after death experience with near death experiences and that term is often misused to mean people almost dying near death experiences in english really means people who die clinically but have the experience of levitating usually above the wardrobe and seeing things on top of the wardrobe they <laughs> hadn't known were there nothing more exciting than that seems to happen occasionally there's a burst of light and they see auntie flow or their uncle uh, Albert, but usually <laughs> nothing. And the point about after-death experiences is, as far as we know, they mainly happen to Americans, which makes you suspicious to start with. They don't <laughs> happen to Poles and Bolivians. <laughs> and secondly, there is no what is called veridical evidence, not of a single near-death experience, not of one. Even the well, neurosurgeons who believe in after-death experiences can repeat or can point to a veridical experience. That is one where you find someone who did not know that there was a 10-cent coin on top of the wardrobe and can be filmed not knowing and then discovers it's a, a coin it's... on top of the wardrobe. It's just something they believe happened. I have nothing to say to these people because it's not my business. If they believe it happened, that's their business. I can't say it didn't happen. All I can say is you have to convince me and no one can so far. And I can assure you, uh, Robert, that I will not be trying to do so either in this interview or post this interview. Forgive me for, 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 for chuckling through that, uh, through that explanation of yours, but uh, your wittiness knows no bounds, which leads me to my next question, which you actually can you admit in your book to, to some lack of clarity and confusion. You say the idea, you're quoting Ashley Montague, the American-British anthropologist, who quipped, the idea is to die young as late as possible. Um, uh, and you quite 
never have come, you haven't come to terms with what he exactly meant by that witticism. <laughs> I'd like to explain that. <clears throat> yes, well, I mean, you know, it's very difficult to actually enact that. But my aim, to put what he said a little differently, my aim is to live to be old enough to, well, I'll, I'll put this differently. I want to live as long as I am well and of sound mind, so long as I can enjoy being who I am, whatever age that might be at. I'm a little disconcerted in these COVID-19 times that the number of people who seem to think because older people are not productive in quite the way they might have been when they were 34, they should die. Stop cluttering up the system, stop costing so much money. One of our very well-known politicians, I won't say who, was quoted uh, quite widely, quite recently, saying that old people were taking up a lot of, well, they were costing a lot, about $200,000, I think, to keep alive. And this is too much. And nature should be allowed to take its own course. Well, the point of this book is to say, let's have a society where we all help each other to live as long as we each want to. That's what I think would make a good society, as long as we each would want to. Mm. So I talk about the sorts of things which, in my experience, and talking to all these various women, a couple of men, my book, I think other people also think, I think that there are things about the way we can experience time, the way we experience happiness, the way that we don't care as much as we once might have about what people think of us that make our last decades particularly happy ones. A friend of mine from Russia actually said to me last week that although he has a terminal diagnosis, actually, he's never been happier in his life. And it all has to do with time, the different attitude to time, that our minutes are not linked to hours, which are not linked to days or weeks or months. We live in pools of time now. We enjoy the pool. We don't ask ourselves what it's linked to. We just enjoy it. It's a joy. It puts a physical smile on my face when in the morning I think this is a beautiful pool of time. I mean, this pool of time has got a finch in it flying in and out of the nest. It might have a cup of coffee in it. It has talking to you in it. It has a vase of flowers in it. It has a French novel that I'm reading in it. It has all, all sorts of things in it that are leading nowhere. But it is a beautiful pool of time. And I'm not thinking about how many more there might be. I do understand that, you know, if you're going to fly to Melbourne, you have to book a ticket and pay for it in advance. I, <laughs> I do understand that, of course. It's not appreciated if you just turn up at the airport. But in general, I don't think as you grow older, where you have no boss quite often to tell you what to do, I don't think that you need to feel obliged to live minute to minute to minute to minute. I think that you can breathe more deeply than that. Who wants to live like that, really? I think also you can be more creative because during the bulk of our lives, this isn't true of people like you who have radio programs <laughs> and blogs, but it is true of at least half the population, I think. We don't feel very creative. 
because we've got people who own our time. They are masters of our time, telling us what to do, when and where. Now we can be creative. We can reinvent ourselves. And that's what creativity is about. It's about finding a different you. The poem or the new layout for the garden or the new way of forming a friendship, the creativity in your life will take its own form. But what you're really doing is not writing a poem or planning a garden. You're reconfiguring yourself and you've got time to do it. And it takes time. Time's on the wing um, and there's so much more we could have chatted about. But um, there was uh, a thing of great personal interest to me. You have a chapter titled Mellow Fruitfulness and you talk about Bertrand Russell's uh, uh, focus on that. And it turned my my mind, um, Robert, to John Keats. I love poetry. And to Autumn. Uh, as one of his his signature poems. Uh, uh, I I just thought you might like to to share your thoughts on mellow fruitfulness with with our listeners. Well, it was the title I chose for that chapter because it's a a non-threatening sort of title, really. I didn't have Keats in mind, although you're the third person this week who's read my book and and started talking about Keats to me. Um, Keats just sort of goes on forever, doesn't he? I think that mellowness is something that we accept and enjoy as we're older. When we're younger, we want brighter colours. We want more activity. But when we're older, mellowness, there's a joy in that in itself. And the fruitfulness just comes if we take our time and concentrate on our inner lives rather than our outer lives. This is, after all, a book about the inner life. That's what it's about. It's about constructing an inner dance, an inner choreography, which we should start constructing when we're young. Quite often we forget to do that, but we should start today, this morning, this afternoon, constructing that dance and dancing it. And then the mellowness is just a sort of beautifully coloured surrounds for our inner experiences and joy. I think life should be more like a tango. What I am against, by the way, as you'll have noticed, is the notion of tranquility, which is so popular Mm. in our society. Mm. Um, I am not a busy man. And when people say to me, I suppose you're too busy to do X, Y, or Z, I usually say, no, I'm not too busy at all. I just don't want to do X, Y, or Z. I don't see any point in being busy or in being tranquil either. I want to be animated. That's the main sense of this book. Animation and joy in the animation. Wonderful words, Robert, and uh, and and a book full of full of um, full of your wisdom and uh, and so much to offer people. Because uh, as as you acknowledge in the book, uh, in many ways we're fearful of death uh, and the fearfulness of death and the date coming up. Uh, somewhere in the future can can limit people so much in uh, in seeking that abundant inner life uh, that uh, that you talk of can i thank you so much for your time and congratulations on on another most enjoyable and enlightening um, uh, book 
Thank you, Henry. Been very kind. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. And Bye. me too. And we had such a good chat. That was uh, Robert Desai, listeners, Growing Older Well, The Time of Our Lives. I think it's a book that could appeal to many, many people. And in fact, while Robert Desai did disclose that uh, he probably... Uh, prefers the company of people over their mid-30s to me. Um, This is a book that people under 30, 35 could well gain from reading as well as those of us a bit older. We'll take a short break. Listeners, don't go away. (laughs) 